Welcome to Tectonic, episode number 10.6. This is a weekly talk show revolving around the seismic shifts in technology, culture, and the digital age. I am your host, Joe Darnell, and with me is Mr. Joshua Pfeiffer. How are you doing, man? Good evening, Joe. I'm doing well. And uh, also with us is a great guest of mine, an old friend, Mr. TJ Draper. Greetings, Earthlings. Uh, is that from Star Command or is that from the Enterprise? I greet you from the Vulcan High Star Command, yes. Oh, dear. Wow. You're going to have to explain <laughs> that one to me later. It is. I'm, I'm mashing up a bunch of different uh, genre, or not genres, but uh, shows or sci-fis and, and mashing them all together and, and making everybody mad. It, it got very, very nerdy very quickly around here. I don't, I don't know what's going on. Usually we warm up to nerdiness, but you just <laughs> got right into it. The first bullet point under my name that I put is nerd, so you know know what to expect. You look up the dictionary app, and next to the word geek is a picture of TJ. It just is that way. Oh, now, are we going to have the debate, geek or nerd? Oh, should we? We can launch into that. No, no, we totally shouldn't. Wait a minute. As it relates to technology, I think this is a very important topic. Mm. It's not in the outline, though. Mm. Mm. It's true. (laughs) Okay, until next time, we'll add that to the outline for the next time we have TJ. And the reason we're going to have you this time around is because I got to know you a number of years ago when I happened across a technology review you had written for, what was it, AppStorm.net? Yes. And I criticized what you had to say. (laughs) You you say that. I don't remember that, but you say that. Oh, I I remember (laughs) you coming back at me. No, not TJ. I I would never. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I discovered the opinionated side of Mr. TJ. And uh, it was it was a healthy experience. Is there another side? It, you, you made me think uh, whether or not I wanted to continue reading the website, but it was worth it. <laughs> and as it turned out, you were as much of a tech enthusiast as I was. You were using Apple computers. You were developing code. You were in filmmaking for an indie studio in the great state of Tennessee. That's true. Then we started a podcast together. Those many years ago. Many years ago. I, I remember it fondly, and I was so nervous. I, I was actually nervous reaching out to you to ask you to start a podcast with me. It was very odd. Why? Uh, thinking about it now, I'm like, I, 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 you know, you're nobody. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we were nobodies then, and we're still nobodies now. You know what's interesting, Joe, is I've known you for a little over two years now. We've been doing a podcast for over two years now, but I've... No, 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 no. We've been doing podcasts for three years. Has it been three? Well, hmm. Has it been three? We went through the third year anniversary on July the 20th. Wow. You didn't remember anniversary? Oh, boy. You're, you're right, because I was just looking... We just started in 2012, and we're in 2015 now. That makes sense. I, I just lost track of time. Wow. Anyway, the point I was going to allude to is that I've known Joshua for longer than you. Strangely enough, we I met Joshua under different contexts and circumstances. You met Joshua separately, and now we all three know each other, so it's kind of weird. Yes, it is. Now, how did y'all actually meet? Uh, we were actually members of the same church for a time. Oh, huh. Joshua, I didn't know that you were ever outside of Georgia. It's true. Yeah, I lived in Illinois for a few years where uh, I guess TJ met his wife. Whoa, this what a different true. time, a different place. We, we, we can all be forgiven for having lived in Illinois, I think. <laughs> and then in the last couple of years, we all moved over to cyberspace. It's all one great big happy family here. It feels like we're all right at home. We all live in the same community. Yeah. Happy family on cyberspace. Yeah, I don't know what cyberspace you're on. but <laughs> <laughs> I use a lot of ad blockers and tag blockers and keyword blockers. Yes. TJ? Yes. You, you're, you're something of a web developer uh, enthusiast, uh, expert. Yes, yeah, sure. You have many websites under your belt. 
I wanted to talk with you about the greater web today. Okay. And also your career, how, how you go about building on the web. And uh, speaking of nerdery, we'll go just back to the beginning. Like, what was TJ doing in the playpen with a telescope calculator and a, a uh, what did they call them back in those days, Palm Pilots? <laughs> how, did you, how did you get started with technology earlier on? You weren't actually interested in a career involving code development, graphic design, or filmmaking when you were in high school, were you? No, I, I've been through very many different phases of my life. See, my family moved out to a farm uh, when I was 14, but before that, we had like computers and I was always interested in them, but I had nobody to teach me how they worked. And I was too busy, you know, with my entrepreneurial endeavors of paper routes and, and things of that nature. I was, uh, I had like a little uh, dirt bike that I was uh, rebuilding and stuff like that. So in a different way, nerdy and techie, but we also had the computer and I was interested in that. I remember we had a uh, Windows 95 box and I remember that whoever we got it from had configured it so that it booted up into DOS and you would have to type WIN to start Windows. And I remember that very well. But I also remember that uh, we were so computer illiterate at the time that when I got done playing the games or whatever I was doing with Windows 95, we would just flip the power switch and it would turn off. Wow. <laughs> that was how computer illiterate we were at the time. We didn't know anything about a shutdown routine of... So that was my early exposure to computers. And then we moved to the farm and computers kind of went by the wayside for a while. Uh, and, and those interests weren't really renewed until I was very late in my teens. Kind of a late start to getting into that sort of thing. But even though I went into filmmaking for a time, back in 2003, I was developing really, really terrible websites. I mean, just awful. But Weren't we all? Yeah, I was definitely messing with HTML and, and, and what existed of CSS at that time. But back at the time, it seemed like all the web was just in the raw. I remember <laughs> things just feeling like first drafts, and they were always made with the tackiest colors. Have you seen the screenshots of Apple's website, the website as it has evolved over the years, like 98, 99, 2000? They're like, I would be embarrassed <laughs> to, to have developed that site. You know, even then, I felt like they were ahead of the curve, but I never wanted to model a website after what they were building. Mm. It was only after they came out with, I think it was... And probably the iPod video that I started to notice that they were getting ahead of the curve with their website's development. And I started seeing that they, they were taking a better track for the design and concerned with something that was aesthetically pleasing, readable. And also, I think that the whole web learned something over the last decade was that they needed to make things a little bit more like desktop publishing was, or at least was inspired by the same design principles, but apply them to a completely different medium. Mm -hmm. And for a long while there, there were a lot of designers who said, well, this whole new medium is a completely different beast. We should just, you know, use it as this uh, boundless playground. We, we can do whatever we want. We don't have to apply any principles. And over time, you'll see that we spend more time, you know, deliberating our margins and our headers, our footers, <laughs> our uh, headings, our footnotes, how you know things should be italicized properly, the proper layout of bullet points and spacing and indentation. This is something that happens over time. And you're seeing where more and more websites are concerned with essentially looking like a well-polished, a refined magazine layout. I think that over time, we have collectively as a whole, the internet have gained a sense of taste that we completely lacked in the late 90s and early 2000s. And we certainly, like you're saying, we've, we've, we're paying a lot more attention to the details and we're treating it like a real thing. It, it almost felt at that time like the internet was a hobby. And, and now the internet is, um, for better or for worse, kind of like ingrained and it's part of our lives. And it's this, you know, the, we want to treat it 
as a real thing now. And and we really didn't back in those days. And and oh, I just look at the even the things that I turned out, then I had no taste and I didn't know what I was doing. It was terrible. Now it was also around the same time that podcasts were invented. I guess actually some of the earliest so-called podcasts go back to the late nineties. I don't know that you would call them that back then. No, no. Um, I'm I'm actually looking up. I'm trying to find when podcasts became a thing. I want to say it was around 2004, and they kind of started with this company, Odeo. They actually went on and started Twitter after Apple kind of took over podcasts. It was either like 2003 or 2004 when the word podcast became a thing. And Steve Jobs had a lot to do with that when he was announcing the addition of podcasts library to iTunes. Yes. It was many, many years ago. I remember watching that presentation Yes, and kind of scratching my head at the time because I was just starting to really pay attention to t- uh, radio talk shows. I was thinking, so it's like radio, but whenever I want to listen to it, only after I've downloaded it to my device and then I have to sit in front of my computer to listen to it. That doesn't sound like fun. It didn't occur to me just how special podcasts were going to become. What we saw for years was I think everybody wrestled with that problem, didn't really understand podcasts. And part of the deception was the name podcast threw everybody to think that in order to listen to one of these programs, you first have to have an iPod or an Apple thingy. Mm. And I still get that from people today. I was talking to a young man that is right out of college not too long ago, who is an incredibly polished young man, I, I figured that he would understand these things. And I asked, so what do you listen to and, You know, when you can, just w- when you feel like? Do you listen to music or talk radio? What do you do? And he's like, yeah, you know, I've dabbled with a little bit of this content online. And I, I listen to whatever as it comes by. I'm not really thinking about it too much. And I asked him, so any podcasts? Do you listen to any podcasts in the mix? Have you listened to any podcasts? And he's like, oh, no, see, I don't have an iPhone. Interesting. You're saying that, well, podcasts can be decoupled from the mobile experience, or particularly the iPhone, and to me, podcasting for me, I mean, I listened to a few podcasts before I had an iPhone, but podcasting for me took off after I got my iPhone, because I was then able to listen to them in the car, or when I was working out, or or whatever, I could put my headphones in and I could listen to podcasts, and before that... I listen to podcasts sometimes when I was working, but I, I actually find it very difficult to listen to to people speaking about a subject I'm interested in and get work done. I, I much prefer to listen to music. So for me, having a mobile device in my pocket where I could listen to podcasts was what made podcasting take off from in my experience. For me, it was back when I had an, an iPod itself, pre, yeah, predating my iPhone experience. And I just got used to the idea because I didn't want to spend a lot of money on music and I had an iPod. I was actually experimenting with whether or not I could tolerate watching video content on the iPod video. I downloaded, I think it was the second season of Lost. And I was watching that when I was totally bored silly, when I was down in Florida for a contractual job building a house. And I had a lot of spare time. So when I was done, you know, going through the television show Lost, I kind of noticed the podcasts were free. And for that reason, I just looked up some various topics and found something I liked. And yeah, so I've had two or three pods, uh, iPod, <laughs> podcasts on my iDevice for all these years since. Maybe that was around, yeah, that was 2007 that I started paying attention to podcasts. What about Joshua? What about you? I think uh, somewhere around 2006 or seven is when I first got my uh, my first Mac and then my subsequent iPhone. So it was somewhere around there, and I had a, a job at the time where I didn't have to put a whole lot of thinking into it. So I, I listened to uh, a lot of podcasts around that time. But then what, along the way, though, 
TJ, made you think that you wanted to be a podcaster? Were you already in video media and editing and film capture? I've always had an interest in media of all kinds, which led me into my film career for a time and and editing and being out on set and and things like that. But I've always had an interest in all forms of media. Uh, And I used to, when I was a, a kid... I had this tape recorder and I would record things. And I also had a, a a tape duplicator, like, you know, it was basically a boom box with two things. One would record and one would play and you could like splice things together. And I got into editing in that very crude form of analog editing. And then I would splice my voice in and I would make trailers for things. And then uh, as, as I got into podcasts and here I am, I know how to edit video. Like I'm a, I, I'm really proficient in Final Cut Pro. And now obviously since I'm a podcaster, I've become proficient in Logic uh, because I, that, that's kind of where, where my skills lie the most is in the editing and putting things together and, and technical expertise. But I got, really got into listening to podcasts, which is interesting because I was never really a big fan of talk radio before that. I, I'd listen to it a little bit and it would just bore me to tears. But I found with podcasting that I could easily find topics that I was interested in listening to. And as I, as I, I would find myself talking back to the podcasters coming through my speakers or my headphones. And I would say, no, no, it's this. Or, or yes, I completely agree with you. Even if it was just in my head, I had this dialogue with them. And I'm like, I, I have something that I want to contribute. I have something I want to say. And I like, I like the spoken word. I like recording stuff. And I like having the mastery of that technology. So that's kind of what led me into podcasting. And and so then it just became a thing of what do I want to talk about? Well, one thing that, Joe, you and I have a movie uh, show where we talk about movies. And that felt to me like one area where I was having a hard time finding podcasts that I was interested in listening to. It felt like um, Blue Ocean. It felt like something that we could go and, and do and not a lot of other people were doing. And I loved it. So that's what led me into podcasting. And they weren't at the time. I remember that. We saw that there were some very popular movie-related blogs. There were some YouTube channels that were reviewing movies, but it was still early days. We didn't have honest trailers or how it should have ended on YouTube. We had Slash Film, and then we had mainstream media outlets that had the normal stuff you hear about the Hollywood life and marketing pieces that were translated into articles for the likes of big news outlets online. But besides them, there weren't that many outspoken. I mean, heck, there have always been bloggers that were talking about movies. I'm just saying that there weren't that many podcasters that were really developing a series of great reviews. Exactly. I was very excited to get on board with the idea. The point of entry was so much easier to get into. Yes. Since that time, you transitioned from your prior experience as a video editor and filmmaker into web development at Caddis Interactive. Yeah, so I'm I'm a senior developer at Caddis now. That's that's my official title. I'm I'm a full stack web developer. What does it mean to be a full stack senior web developer? I thought you might ask that. So a full stack. I, I didn't start out as full stack. I really started out as front end. And I it you know the full stack thing has been a long time coming. I actually started you know as I mentioned earlier, I had dabbled in web development, and I I really came to take over. Even though I was technically an editor. Uh, at the film company, I, I took over the website duties just because nobody else was doing it. And it's like, well, you've been you know, doing some HTML and CSS, so you're going to have to start taking over uh, the maintenance of that. So that's kind of how I really got into it. And that's what led to my current job, really. But so full stack means that not only do I write the HTML and CSS and I can handle the front end stuff, but now I, I, I write a lot of PHP, which is back end code. Uh, that's that's telling the server how to serve things. That's That's doing stuff before it ever gets to the browser. 
you know, I say full stack. I, I still am not like I don't start web applications from scratch. I typically build on a CMS, but I, I tend to get my hands dirty in a lot of backend code. So that that's what it means to be full stack. And would you like to develop your own CMS? Is that something you want to add to your skill set? I would love to do that someday. Um, I, I feel like that may be a few years out. And there are plenty of CMSs. Honestly, there are at least three right now that I love. Uh, and WordPress is not among them. <laughs> I was I was waiting for you to take a breath so I could uh, throw that in there. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not a big fan of WordPress either. I figured that there had to be a number of us out there who are opposed to it. Is it really still the most popular platform there is? It is by far. When you're talking about taking something that runs on the LAMP stack, which is Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP, that's what LAMP stands for. Uh, when you're talking about something that runs on the LAMP stack that is not a hosted solution, you're you're pretty much talking WordPress. That that's what most people run because that's what it, it's become the Windows of 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 content management systems. And if you're doing custom development, WordPress is not really the best thing there is. There's Expression Engine Craft. Uh, there's Statomic if you don't want to go with a database. Like there's there's a lot of options out there that are far better for custom development. But these are things that I would say the the market out there never even gets exposed to. Like they never bother to learn these things, uh, understand these things, and, and everything is changing so rapidly that as someone who has experience dabbling with various platforms, I, I just ask myself, like, what's the point? Should, should I actually get familiar with the things behind the, uh, the, the in the backside, or should I just pay attention to this seas of change, you know, what's becoming popular or what seems to be broken when I just try to log in and create an account for the first time. I would say you as a designer, Joe, which is, is how I know you, uh, what, what you, a lot of what you do. I know that you're obviously doing a lot of podcasting and other technical work now, but, but I, you know, you do a lot of design work and I would say as a designer, you don't need to know about these platforms or at least you don't need to be that familiar with them. Um, as a developer, I think that, you know, I should, and, and anybody else who is a custom developer who develops custom websites should know what your choices are. We have a couple guys at work who, who will do WordPress and we, we manage some WordPress sites, but I, I tend to manage the expression engine and craft sites. Um, so you wanted me to tell you more about what we do at Caddis, right? Yes, please. So, um, Caddis is technically an ad agency, but our development team is by far the, the biggest. That has been the case. I have seen at several other agencies. Yes, we, we do other ads and, and magazine things and, and, and what have you, but our, you know, in today's age of computers and, and internet and that, that, them old internets, um, you know, your website is your most important thing as a company. And we love to partner with you know, anybody who wants to partner with us to help them build their brand, uh, and that mostly means via online things. One of the sites that I had the great privilege of working on over the last six or seven months, I, I completely redesigned. Uh, I didn't do the design, but I did all the development, and, and Tyler was the lead designer at Caddis. Um, he and I did all of the, redesigned the Whitetail Properties website. There's now a, a component of it that where you log in and you can favorite properties and you can get notifications on your phone because there's an app, uh, and I did a lot of the back-end design for that, uh, you know, work for that as well, integrating with Expression Engine. So you will get a notification on your phone when one of your properties has changed price or it's changed status or or whatever, or you can you can save searches. And when a new property becomes available that meets your search criteria, you'll get a notification. So it's a really powerful you know tool that goes along with all the branding that we've done for Whitetail Properties. So something I noticed about the website for Whitetail is how you have integrated video content. There's links to downloads on the App Store and Google Play, and then you have built in. I guess these were Google Maps or maps of some kind of web app. 
Yes, the maps are a huge component on the Whitetail Properties website. If you click on the Properties tab, you'll see like we have markers and pins and everything for all their properties. It's beautiful. It's a brilliant yeah. layout. This is just what I want the internet to be like. And when you click on a state, for instance, it will zoom into that state and it will show you an outline of all the counties, you know, and it will give you the pins of where they are on the map. And so the, the map honestly took a lot of my time in, in, in you know, interacting with Google's API. And just learning how that worked, I'd never done a lot with Google's API before, Google Maps API before. Well, this goes back to what you were saying earlier, how you were interested in video media and how you were also, well, in general, just interested in like all the various media outlets that there are. This is what the internet represents today. The internet is not just text or audio or video or programs. It's it's all of the above. They've been integrated. They're side by side. You never know when you're on a website or on a web app or in a client it's, it's beautiful. I love it because the seamless experience basically caters to getting things done or just uh, enjoying entertainment to the fullest when you happen across a great website that's oh, about whatever your nerdy interest is. You can make a website that gives you the best of all worlds. You don't have to have the book to give you the making of you know, biographical information on Steven Spielberg, then go to the box set of a movie to watch interviews and get director's commentaries. You could technically get them all in one place with a website and you can make this fabulous experience. I just noticed like when we had our guest, Sean, that he was talking about the focus course and you go to his website and you check out the focus course, you have the online community, you have the lessons there, you have video content there. And this is what I really enjoy about the internet today. I think that right now it's really popular to, you know, categorize these things sometimes. So we like to we like to put YouTube in a box, but then I think before the end of our life, we're gonna see that video is just ubiquitous across all the internet. Like, yes. I think that it, it, anything you want, you could find it on any website and people aren't going to, they're not going to catch themselves saying, oh, looky there, there is a YouTube embed. They're just going to say, oh, there is a, a website with everything on it. And like our children are not going to know a world where you have video content in one place, audio content in another, programs in another, and article content and, you know, that kind of data in another. It's all side by side. It's beautiful. Yeah. And speaking of video media, like I, I know that Whitetail Properties is not necessarily appealing to us tech geeks, uh, but it is the latest site that I did. So I'll continue using it as an example. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. So if you scroll halfway down the page, you'll see an area called, uh, and this is the homepage of the Whitetail Properties website. You'll see an area called property videos. So a lot of these properties have videos associated with them, like the the agents, the brokers have um, ha, you know, contracted with a, a, a production company to have these short little promo videos made. And so you can see right on the homepage there, hey, this property has a video. And the, every time you load the page, they're randomly brought in from the various properties. You know, that's a lot of user engagement right there. Honestly, if you look at the stats, the users, a lot of them, some, you know, some of them aren't. They're interested in, uh, in more text or maybe they're interested in pictures, but a lot of them are interested in video. So it's a complete media experience. So I wanted to get into a little bit about your workflow because I think that most people today who listen to podcasts at one time or other have considered a career working with websites, mm -hmm. whether they knew, whether they realized they were cut out for a job coding or designing. So how did you find your niche and what led you into the coding and how did you learn coding along the way? Well, so that's an interesting question. Um, uh, as you may have gathered from the way that I have described how I got into web development, I am one of the few at Caddis, even though I'm a senior developer, 
uh, and have gotten into that position. I'm one of the few at Caddis who did not go to school for this, uh, and and so I learned by I wanted to do X, and so I would start looking up on Google. Google is this amazing tool. People underrate, like they don't know how to use Google or they don't use Google to its full potential. If you if you want to learn to do something, you can Google it. And that's often just what I did. Now, I've learned obviously of other resources along the way, or maybe Google would lead me to another resource that I'll think, oh, that site keeps coming up. That is a really good site. You know, maybe it's HTML goodies or I don't know. I think I haven't been there in a long time, but uh, so that's probably a bad example, but just, um, you know, Stack Exchange, there's usually a JavaScript area there, or maybe there's the Expression Engine Stack Exchange or whatever. Uh, so as I wanted to learn how to do something, and I and I also immerse myself in sites that I like. Like I will I will go and I will look for sites that I like. I say this is what I like. How can I do what they're doing? Or or I'll open the web developer in Chrome and inspect and look at exactly how they're accomplishing something. You know because you can you can use the web developer tools in Chrome, a Google Chrome, and you can do this in Safari too. I just think Chromes are way better. Uh, but you can use the web developer tools to inspect kind of what they're doing with the code, and you can learn a lot about what they're doing. You can look at, uh, if you, you look at the JavaScript source and, and kind of see what, what the JavaScript is doing and how it's interacting with, with what, you know, what you're seeing on the page. So a lot of my learning is just by, I want to do that. Let me find out how to do it. That, and, and I'm the type of person, everybody learns differently, right? I'm the type of person, you know, I'll sit down with my boss or, or maybe we'll bring somebody in for a lunch and learn and they'll be talking about this really cool thing and I'll think, yeah, that, that sounds great. I love what I'm seeing, but I won't actually learn how to do it until I get my hands into it. And then I'll actually know what questions I want to ask. And maybe I'll ping that person again that had come and, and spoke about it or the person I know that did this thing say, now that I've got my hands a little bit dirty, I know kind of what I'm looking for. Explain that to me again. Oh, now it clicks. Like, so everybody learns differently, but that's how I learned. And what do you think, and I'm asking you this because I've actually been planning to ask you this question for a long time. I love to ask web developers this question. Hmm. What do you think is on the horizons for web development in the rest of 2015? You know, where do you see the sea changes? What do we need to know about and kind of anticipate as we continue to develop our websites? You just check out the internet and make good use of it. The standards for web development, uh, you know, there's there are standards bodies that that kind of standardize the what HTML should look like. And right now we're on HTML5 and CSS3. Like there are standards bodies out there, a consortium of of different uh, people that come together and companies that come together and say, what should the web look like and what do we need as we evolve? What thing, what things are we missing and, and what do we add? So you, you're right in a sense when you said earlier that the, well, how do you know what to learn and what languages to learn? Cause that's a, a ever changing and ever evolving landscape. But, but the fact of the matter is in some sense, HTML is still HTML. The, the way we do some things has changed, um, but, but it's still foundationally HTML. It's still very recognizable. CSS, we've added a lot of really cool features to CSS, but it's still CSS. You know, JavaScript, I'm really excited about the things we have coming in uh, ECMAScript 6 and uh, ES7. Um, that, that, that one's a little bit further out. Uh, browser support is abysmal right now for ES7. In fact, it's non-existent. And ES6 even, um, you know, ECMAScript 6. Uh, but I'm excited about a lot of the things that are on the horizon for that. So it is a challenge to stay up to date with all these things because the standards are rapidly evolving. And on the other hand, sometimes I think they're not evolving rapidly enough because I see the hacks that we have to do to get around things and to, to work on mobile devices. And uh, so it's, it's kind of a push and a pull, you know. You've got you've to find the right way to, to do things. I don't know if I'm answering your question, though. No, no, you're doing a great job because this is what I expect from a, as a layperson to 
see that it's just as difficult for y'all as it is for someone like me that I just imagine, you know, there's going to be some web developer gurus out there who know what they're doing and somehow they're able to stay on top of it all. But I haven't ever met a web developer who could say that, honestly, they knew what to expect for the rest of the year because the development is just going so rapidly. Yeah, and it's the sort of thing where I may have my head down developing a thing, and then I'll look up and, oh, this really cool thing is coming out, and I didn't even know that was on the horizon. So that does happen to me for sure. But I'll tell you one of the, I can tell you one of the things that I'm really excited about right now is HTTP2. Uh, you guys may not realize this. HTTP 1.1 has been around for something like 10 years. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Are you about to say that we're going to get away from URLs that begin with HTTP or HTTPS? No, no. There, uh, HTTPS is still the determining protocol. Now, I will say this. HTTP is unencrypted. HTTPS, uh, that is what we call SSL, and that is where the web is headed. That is an in- encrypted connection. And HTTP2... Uh, and all the benefits of it really only work over SSL, HTTPS. Uh, but so we've been running on HTTP 1.1 for the, that's the, what the internet runs on right now. Like the good majority of the internet is on HTTP 1.1, and it, it it's such an old uh, uh, communication method over the internet that we've had to do a lot of hacky things to to get around the kind of the pitfalls of that protocol. Uh, we, we concatenate our JavaScript files into one big file because there, there's so much overhead in opening a new connection for each additional resource every time. Things like that. You know, the, the headers and the, the compression of headers, uh, every, every page, every request, let me, let me rephrase, every request has a header that tells the browser something about that request. HTTP2 does away with all that. You open one connection to the server and you keep it open and you say, hey, I'd like this resource or hey, I'd like this resource or I'm going to send you this resource. So it's a two-way connection that stays open until the page is loaded and it is blazing fast. It is way faster than HTTP 1.1 could ever be. So that that's I know that's really nerdy and really technical, but that is one of the things I am super excited about. So we're getting a new internet? Is, is that what I'm hearing? I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying. It's late here, but I, I just heard a new internet. It's, it, it's, it's going to look like the same internet to you and to Joe and to everybody else, but it's going to load a whole lot faster. Like when you request a page, it's going to come something like 70% faster than HTTP 1.1. Okay. So it's going to feel like a native app. I don't know if we're there. Uh, there's I even though I'm a web developer, I'm still a big fan of native apps. Um, but but even even so, with native apps, a lot of native apps now they have internally in the app they're requesting resources from the web all the time. And I believe, though I haven't heard a lot about this yet, I can only imagine that this sort of protocol is going to help them out a lot as well. One of the problems that we've had though, and this is a pro- still a problem we face with IE8. Interestingly, IE8 usage, Internet Explorer 8 that came with Windows XP, you may remember, that's the last version that Windows XP supported. Oh, oh, I um, remember. <laughs> I still <laughs> so use it at work. One of the problems is that Internet Explorer 8 is not an auto-updating browser and a lot of people are still stuck on Windows XP and it's not what we call an evergreen browser and we're still dealing with the fallout from that. IE9 actually has far less usage than IE8 because IE9 is when Microsoft started automatically pushing out browser updates to their users with Windows 7. And so we still deal with this problem, but I I think what you're going to see in the next couple of years as we finally, finally, finally drive a stake in the heart of IE, Hmm. IE8, excuse me, is that (laughs) um, we're going to be able to evolve the web much more rapidly because we don't have to worry about browsers as much anymore because, hey, you know what? I opened up Chrome and it updated itself to version, I don't even know what we're running. Is it 42 or 43? Um, you know, Safari, uh, 44, good good gracious. So um, 
Safari is a little bit slower, but it's still much, much faster. You still, you know, most Mac users are on the latest OS, and so they're they're using the latest Safari, and so we're going to see a lot greater development of web standards uh, in the in the years to come. It's going to be much more rapid. We won't have to worry about older browser support nearly as much. It's not going to hold us back. So I'm a big fan of Safari, TJ. Don't say anything against it. I, I don't have a problem with Safari uh, in general. I, I mostly keep my mail open in it because I, I like to keep my mail separate from my general browsing. And I've moved I've moved pretty much to online mail. I use Google Inbox. So Safari is a far better browser than Firefox, for instance. So. <laughs> <laughs> and you pointed out here, too, that you, you were interested to see what Microsoft is doing with their latest browser. Is that true? Uh, how do you see the differences being with Microsoft Edge and when you say it's a better browser, should we consider it equals with Google Chrome and Safari? How do you, how would you de- define it? Chrome is on top for me because I'm a developer and I love the the web developer tools in Chrome. There there are so many good things. Yeah, it seems to be that Google Chrome thinks in the best interests of the de- developers in general. Right. So I don't know how Microsoft Edge stacks up in that in that way. It, traditionally, Internet Explorer's development tools have been terrible. And I really haven't played with Microsoft Edge's development tools. But as far as the rendering engine, it looks like Microsoft actually is giving a care about web standards. And so we don't have to do these crazy, awful hacks to to try to get our web pages to work in Internet Explorer because they're supporting the latest standards in the same way that every other browser renders it. Microsoft Edge is going to render it the same way. And so that's that's a that's a good thing for everybody, hmm. I think. Okay, so I want to jump down the outline here because we don't have too much time left. I wanted to discuss what tools you use to get the job done. What do you like on your uh, computer? What would you never go without? (laughs) I'd never be without my Mac. I'm currently running the latest version of Yosemite. I am not running the beta of El Capitan because I went there with the beta with Yosemite and my life was miserable for the three months that I was running the beta. And even on into after the release, I don't even know if I'm going to upgrade to El Capitan after the release. I may wait a couple of months, but in any event, um, so uh, I'm a I'm very much a Mac user. I actually feel like the Mac is a better testing environment because I have VirtualBox, which virtualizes Windows, and I can test in every browser pretty much available. So I can have VirtualBox running and and be looking in IE8 and Windows XP. I can be looking in Microsoft Edge in Windows 10. I can be looking in in IE 11 and 10 in Windows 7, and I can have those all running on my on my MacBook Pro, and I can barely tell it. Like my fans may be running a little bit when I'm getting that hot and heavy into <laughs> testing, but it's not that big of a deal. So I'm a very much a Mac guy. So as far as my software, I love Sublime Text 3, and I have highly customized it because that's one of the reasons that I like it is because, you know, all of the, a lot of people hate this about Sublime Text, but I love it. All of the uh, customizations happen in a text file. Uh, use, you know, you have your user preferences all in a text file. It's what we call JSON. Mm. And so you you give it a line and it, it changes this aspect or that aspect. And so I have a highly customized user file uh, full, of, uh, full of commands that tell it how to look and how to behave. And I have a custom theme. So Sublime Text 3, I have a lot of uh, add-ons installed that give it intelligence for JavaScript and PHP and that sort of thing. So... I love Sublime Text 3. I use uh, Tower uh, for Git version control. Um, and I, I do a little bit with Git version control on the command line when I have to, but I love the visual interface of Tower and I love the workflow that Tower gives me. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. I know there's others out there such as SourceTree for any of you web developers listening. Um, and that's fine. I have a coworker who uses SourceTree and it seems fine. Uh, I am a Tower user. So, um, and as I've already mentioned, I couldn't do what I do and enjoy it without Google Chrome and the dev tools there. 
Before um, the layperson again, can you explain what Git is all about? Oh, Git. So Git is is version control. Um, Git has a, what's called a branching model, so that uh, and and we use at Caddis, um, and I'm a big proponent of something called Git Flow. So we have the master branch, which always matches what's in production. That's what we call what, what the live website in in the case of a website, or or if it's software, it'd be the the shipping version of the software. Master has to, master branch has to always match the production version of your of your app. Um, and then we have the develop branch where once we're done with features, we merge them into the develop branch and we're testing them and we're working with them. And so we have, we also have this concept of committing. So, uh, we, we try to work in logical groupings. We finish this feature. We'll take all these files and commit them to the branch, whether it's our feature branch or the develop branch, and then we're testing and working with them. So it's just a, a, a way to version control. And, and just recently, um, we rolled out a feature to a website, uh, we, it was an update to an add-on for our CMS that completely blew up when it went to production. And it was uh, literally, I right clicked on the previous commit and said, roll back to this commit and I redeployed and everything was fine. So um, the version control is what Git is. And it's a little bit nerdy, but once you get the hang of it, it is, uh, it's been a lifesaver. Okay. So what else are you using your repertoire? I, I wanted to uh, spend a little bit of time t- uh, at least mentioning a framework that I've been heavily involved in creating called We. It is wepower.com. It is a CSS and JavaScript framework that makes no assumptions about the way you want to build a website, but it has a lot of powerful tools for custom development and for uh, responsive development, a lot of JavaScript tools, a lot of uh, CSS. uh, It's a less framework on the CSS side, so it uses a lot of less mix-ins, and it's it's very powerful. I've written some code that's gone into it, but I've mostly had a hand in shaping the the direction that it's taken, and so I'm very proud of of that work, and I think it's a really great tool that web developers should check out. I use a a software called MAMP Pro for my local development environment that gives me Apache, PHP, MySQL, because we, we, going along with Git, uh, we have very distinctive development environments so that we have a local environment where we can write code, and if we screw something up, it does not mess up our staging environment or our production environment. Uh, so I use MAMP to run a server on my Mac that will serve the website locally. Uh, I use an app called Forklift for FTP. I'm very happy with Forklift. I know there's Transmit and, and there's uh, Cyberduck and stuff like that, but I've, I've, I enjoy Forklift a lot. One of my favorite applications of all time is Pathfinder. And I, I used to not like it back in the early days. It may have been Pathfinder 3 or 4. But we're on Pathfinder 7 now, and it is a fantastic application. I pretty much use it in place of Finder for the most part. Um, I, I mean, Finder's still around. It still runs my desktop and whatever. But when I'm seriously into file management, I use Pathfinder. Um, it has a lot of features that's, that Finder just never thought about having. Uh, I can view all my hidden files, which when you're doing web development, you have sometimes hidden files, .htaccess files, and what have you that, that Finder will not show you, and uh, I can set Pathfinder to show them to me. Uh, Joe, I think you'd actually like it if you ever got into it, because you're, you're one for workflows. It has like a drop zone up on the uh, in, in the sidebar where you can drop a file from one folder and then navigate to another folder and then drop that file from the dot drop zone and move it into your new folder. So it has those sorts of things that I think you would really find fascinating. Interesting. Yeah. I'm not a designer, but when I do have to look at designs that designers have done, or um, it's a stretch to say I'm not a designer. I design stuff. I'm just not the best at it. But I use Sketch, and that's something I'm pretty excited about. It. Go ahead and explain it a little bit. Why should we use Sketch over, you know, just using traditional means like Photoshop? Yeah, so Photoshop has been the go-to for web development for years. But when you think about it, Photoshop was never designed with web development in mind. And they're they're trying to bolt on features now that that help uh, web designers out. 
but it's never been a tool for web design. It's been a tool for manipulating photos, and they've added so many features over the years that it's, you don't think of it like that anymore, but that was the base of Photoshop. And so Sketch was built from the ground up for developing websites. So I have what, you know, for my website that I'm actually working on for my church right now, I have one Sketch file that has, uh, so, so Sketch has the concept of pages, and then pages can have multiple artboards. Artboards can have layers. And so on one page, I have all three versions. My, my mobile, uh, my, responsibly, I have the mobile version, the tablet version, and the desktop version all in one page. And those are all artboards. It's just, it's really, I've found it really fun to, to work with and very easy to understand. And, it, you know, it's really easy to get around and everything makes sense. I've run into very few bugs. So I'm very happy with Sketch for designing websites. The only other thing that I'll say is that Google Inbox has become a real staple for me in my workflow. I, I get a lot of emails at work, and, and e emails, most people think of emails as the bane of their existence. And to some extent, that can be true for me too. And I um, I keep my email open all the time, but, but one thing that has actually helped me, I used to have an application called MailPlane. It's still around, and I still use it occasionally, but uh, that would be where my Gmail accounts lived, and it would have notifications that would come up, and I would see them, and I'd be, oh, I got to look at that. My phone will buzz, but typically I keep it my phone kind of out of sight on my desk and face down so I can't really see it. And so I now check my email kind of more scheduled, and I figure if somebody really needs, uh, there's something really broken that I need to pay attention to, you know, some some critical issue, somebody's going to come over to my desk and tell me, or somebody's going to use HipChat, the chat application we use at work, and tell me. So Google Inbox lets me schedule things, it lets me schedule tasks, it lets me snooze things. So my inbox has really become a really good task list, and, and, and really it even has a checkbox that says, I'm done with this. So you think of your email as tasks, and then you check them off. I know that that concept has been around for a while, but I feel like Google Inbox has done it the best, and I'm really happy with that workflow right now. Interesting. See, as a OmniFocus user and Reminders user, I, I just cringe at the idea of using my inbox as a to-do list, but I understand that it's what a lot of people want to do. They don't want to do things twice, you know, create a list for this when it's already in their inbox and they could just manage a couple of mailboxes with different kinds of listed to-dos. Uh, I can understand where the appeal is there. The big issue for me is when I, you know, most of my things that I need to do have been emailed to me in some form or fashion, and they have information that's associated with the task in that email that I need or I need to reference. And so it just makes sense that that email is my to-do, and I can add a to-do to the email, or I can add more notes to the email or whatever. Uh, that just makes sense to me. So how are you going to approach the rest of 2015 at Caddis? So the rest of 2015 is pretty much booked up for me in developing uh, mobile websites. Um, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about future projects or not, but I do have a website that I'm pretty excited about. It's kind of doing what Warby Parker does for glasses, but with another type of product. Interesting. I'm really excited about it. I'm excited about the designs that I've seen for it, and I'm really, uh, really excited to get to work on it. In general, for web development, um, on, I, I would say that I'm excited to see the tools continue to develop to allow us web developers to, to develop websites that really feel seamless and integrated with mobile, tablet, desktop. Like I want, the, I want the experience for everybody to be as seamless as possible, and I want it to work on whatever device you have, wherever you are, for whatever reason you may want it to. Excellent. Thank you, TJ, for joining us. Where can people find you online if they want to catch up with you further? So I'm on Twitter. I am TJ Draper Pro because somebody's squatting on my TJ Draper username. So TJ Draper Pro is where I'm at on Twitter. 
for another five episodes, you will find me podcasting at moviebyte.com, and then uh, I'll probably go radio silence for a month or so while we're working on some other cool things, but moviebyte.com is a good place to uh, catch up with almost 150 episodes now of what I think is a great podcast. If you are interested in my company, you can go to uh, caddis.co. TJ, I really have enjoyed many of the great episodes of Booby Bite. <laughs> All, <laughs> All the, the great, great episodes. episodes yes. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to what we get to do together for the rest of the year with the podcasts. Yeah, let's see what happens. Absolutely. This completes episode 10.6 of Tectonic. Visit tectonic.fm slash 10-6 for the show notes and links. If you want to connect with us, we are at Tectonic FM on Twitter. And send your feedback via email to hello at tectonic.fm. If you want to catch up with me on Twitter, I'm underscore Joe Darnell. And my co-host, Joshua, who has been a great listener today, is Joshua Pfeiffer. If you want to help us out, visit iTunes and give us a rating and a review there. I'd like to know what you think of the show and uh, if there's anything you'd like to discuss in a future episode. I am Joe Darnell. You've been listening to the Tectonic Podcast. I feel I feel like if I don't have an outline, I don't know what to talk about. Okay, uh, we'll keep it that way then. By the way, how are you, Joshua? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm well. Well, I'm excited to have a podcast with you. I hope you hear plenty of your uh, dulcet tones or whatever it is they say. What is a dulcet tone? I don't know. I just I've heard that expression. Mm. That's supposed to be a compliment or a insult or a passive aggressive. Could be very sarcastic. Yeah, prob- probably. Probably could be an insult let's see a sound or voice so gorgeous you just have to listen to it again and again no matter what (laughs) so so sort of like sultry without being sexy (laughs) all right uh yeah no i didn't use sultry because i knew they had a more of a uh you know sexy connotation it's the difference between sensual and sexual can this be like a a a stinger at the beginning do you do that with tectonic i don't think you do (laughs) we'll put it at the end of the show (laughs) okay